Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John 5, 13 through 21. 1 John 5, 13 through 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies within the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He who is true and eternal life, Jesus Christ. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, and Lord, we have so much to give praise. Lord, we are so grateful for the salvation you've extended to us, and even this past week, we had two young people come to know Christ in our congregation, and we rejoice. Lord, and as we will see next Sunday evening and hear eight individuals sharing that they are followers of you as they participate in believers' baptism. And so, Lord, we rejoice in what you're doing on that level within our congregation. On another level, we heard of your provisions, the finances, the new building that uh, we will enter this coming Sunday. And, Lord, it's all because of you. As we have sung, what he's done. And that is truly all because of you. Father, in our excitement and in our rejoicing, Lord, we also know that there are those suffering in our midst. And we think of Deb Poor, who uh, ushered, you ushered her sister into your presence this past week. We pray you'd comfort her. And Lord, the ongoing request and things that uh, have been raised earlier in the service. Fathers, we come to the text. We ask that you would... Uh, Clear our minds, help us to focus on what you would have for us, Lord, and we just thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, turn to 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. This is the last section of 1 John, and uh, hopefully you have all the notes because there is a test at the open house. So, no, that's not true. Uh, many, many thanks to all of those who have generously given to allow us to have a building, a place to call home. Uh, many, many thanks to those who have served tirelessly these last few years and a couple years and taking things up and down those stairs to store in storage, setting up, tearing down. I want to thank you for all those who've helped in bringing us to this point. And the names are endless. I just want to thank you. Uh, it, I just, yep. Yeah. I was choked up as Artie was just sharing. This is, this is all God. 
and it truly is amazing. And if you don't think that, well, then I don't know. Uh, go check your pulse, right? Well, we're in 1 John chapter 5. <clears throat> you know, there's, there are many things we, we really don't know. You realize that only 5% of the world's seafloor has been mapped? If you exclude dry land, that means 65% of the earth is unexplored. Astronomers only know about 5% of what the universe is made of. There's no definitive theory which explains why blood types differ among human beings or why people love peanut butter with their ice cream. I don't know. There are a lot of things we don't know. But John understands there are some things that we can know. In fact, he uses the word over 30 times. These are things we know. We, we've seen this in our journey through the book. Seven times he will use the word know in this final section, which I believe is most appropriate. Knowing for John is not just a cognitive. It's far more than that. He's tapping into the Old Testament concept of knowing. Isaiah 1, 1 through 3 says, Listen, O heavens, pay attention, O earth. For the Lord speaks, I raised children, I brought them up, they have rebelled against me. An ox knows its owner, a donkey knows its owner who puts food before him, but Israel does not know me. There's more than just the cognitive, there is, there's a heart change. There is a belief system that is carried with that and also an element of love. And this is what John's highlighting here. It implies to know means it's personal. There's an emotional side. There's a relational side. It's like a spouse in marriage saying, I know my partner. And it's more than just intimacy. <laughs> There's many times when I'll start a sentence and my wife will finish it or vice versa. You just know. You know the love language. You know one another well. And that's what... John wants us to have in relationship to the Lord. He's going to give us four very important areas that we need to know. They are reminders. Again, as you might expect, he's teasing out all the things that he's highlighted through this short epistle. But we're going to see there is truth that provides strength for the soul in these things that we know as we embrace it with open arms. And they are affirmations that give us a promise to those who've placed their faith in Christ. Notice in verse 13, he starts with the first of these knowings, and it's the assurance of our faith. He says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. This ties back to earlier in chapter 5, verse 12, he talks about this. So that you may know that you have eternal life. <clears throat> Again, this serves as the bridge. It's interesting, in John chapter 20, verse 31, when John pens his gospel, he says, there are many miracles Jesus has performed. I've only picked a few so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Depending on how you take the Greek there, it could be that you keep on believing. And he does the same with this letter, does he not? It's so that you can know you have a relationship with the Lord. Why? Turn back to chapter 1. John has already t highlighted this. We've looked at this. He says in verse 4 that we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. What would bring joy to him is knowing that you, the reader, have eternal life. That you have a relationship with this Lord. 
and the assurance, the, the certainty that comes from it. Horatio Bonar made this statement. He says, uncertainty as to our relationship with God is one of the most troubling and dispiriting of things. It makes a man heartless. He cannot fight. He cannot run. He is easily dismayed and gives way. He can do nothing for God. It's true. Look at the world. Look at the ways they're trying to compensate that they don't have the certainty of the higher being. But Horatius states, but when we know that we are of God, we are vigorous, brave, invincible. There is no more quickening truth than that of this assurance. John writes, and he states here, so that you know you have eternal life. And the promise number one in your notes, in a world where uncertainty and all that we can be sure about is fleeting, it is a great comfort to know that the assurance that comes from our faith in Jesus. What does Romans 10, 13 state? For anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord might be saved. <laughs> Hopefully you'll be saved. Could be saved. No, will be saved. If the church, an organization, or the government contributed to my salvation, I would be most skeptical. If tradition or heritage contributed to my salvation, I would be most leery. If I personally contributed to my salvation, I would be most concerned. Our salvation doesn't hinge upon the aligning of the stars, the roll of the dice, or wishes made when we blow out the candles on the cake. Our salvation is rooted in Christ and what he has accomplished. And so where are you this morning? Are you confident that if you were to die today, that you would be in the presence of the Lord? And if so, I need to ask the next question, and that is what gives you this confidence. Is it based upon your charitable contributions, your rich heritage, having grown up in the church, or the number of Bible verses you've memorized? Or is it based solely on what Christ has accomplished? For by grace, Paul writes, you are saved through faith, and that it is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. And so the first thing John says, I want you to know something, and it's very profound. <laughs> that is that you know you have eternal life. And that's what this letter has been highlighting time and time again. It's called the epistle of assurance. And, and John has highlighted, how do we know we're truly saved? And he goes, well, look at three areas. How do you love one another? How, how are you doing in righteous conduct? And do you have a proper theology? It, it, those all flow out of a true relationship. And as we see here in verse 13, if we believe in the name of the Son of God, we will have salvation. But our salvation wasn't for just fire insurance. It's not so we can say in the, you know, sweet by and by. It's also for a life that's rich here and now. John has highlighted that. I hope you see that as we move through this letter. And he gives us a second thing we need to know as we wrap up this letter, and that is to know the power of prayer. He states in verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have before him, that is the Lord, that whatever or whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
And if we know that he hears us in regard to whatever we ask, then we know that we have the request that we have asked from him. We have an assurance. There's a couple things here in this power of prayer in this next section. The first is the assurance that our petitions are being heard. He uses the word confidence. It's not the first time he's talked about we who have placed our faith in Christ have confidence before the Lord. We saw this in chapter 3. In fact, it serves as a central theme because if you don't have confidence, you're not entering into this, this relationship of fellowship with God Almighty. And it's one that John highlights. It's rooted in the word of God. It's also rooted in the victories that we presently encounter. Now, there's a few things to note here if you're taking copious notes, uh, helping out your pew members so they can pass the quiz. Pray with confidence means that we know we are accepted by the Lord. I am his. I have eternal life. And I can come before him whenever. And the text tells us he hears us. This isn't just that he's listening. It speaks of favor. He knows. As a dad, it, it, it's, it feels good when your kids come and talk to you and share their day and ask your opinion on things. That's comforting. But all the more the Heavenly Father. In fact, I was thinking through this, unlike moi, with the distractions of life that I sometimes possess as a father, our Heavenly Father doesn't have that. Without the busyness that sometimes consumes me as a dad, the Heavenly Father is not too busy. And without the preconceived ideas or frustrations that I sometimes convey as a dad, sometimes not the Heavenly Father. And, and we are accepted, he hears, and not only are we accepted, but our prayers are accepted. Notice what the text says, whatever we ask, <laughs> Reminded of the, the family that sat down to eat dinner and five-year-old Johnny was asked to pray for the food. And he begins, Dear Lord, please bless. I don't have to eat this. It looks disgusting. <laughs> there are some caveats in whatever we ask. This isn't name it and claim it, which has been sometimes uh, poorly handled what is John, in the larger context of Scripture, stating? Let me give you a few conditions here in light of whatever we ask. First of all, our motives behind our prayers must be pure. James 4 says, You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly so you can spend it on your passions. Woo! That's James 4. Notice what John highlights here. He says in verse 14 that whenever we ask anything and don't miss the next phrase, according to his will. John highlights that prayer is not always answered as we think. Mark 14, even Jesus stated, not my will, Lord, in the garden of Gethsemane, but it's yours. If it be your will, I'd ask you to take the cup from me. But Lord, you're in charge. We have the joyful assurance that whatever is in God's will for us, it will be done. Of course, I realize the question that often is raised is, if, 
it's God's will and he's so sovereign, then why do we even bother asking? Why is prayer even significant? There is no doubt a mystery here. And the Lord is all powerful and sovereign, but let's face it, I, I cannot understand how a holy God can forgive, but I thank him. We're exhorted time and time again to pray. Now think about Jesus in the Gospels. He stressed the importance of prayer. Think about the, the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18. Jesus told them a, that parable to show them that they should always pray and not lose heart. And Jesus himself spent much time in prayer. You look at the Gospel of Luke, every significant event in the life of Christ, he's seen praying. If the Son of God needed to pray while on earth, how much more we? You see, prayer is an opportunity, I would argue, to allow the Lord to accomplish his will through us. And thus so doing, our prayers are molded, they are shaped in conformity to God's will. With this, I would argue, we must seek to obey the Lord and walk in obedience Prayer is an opportunity to yield ourselves to the Lord's will. It's reading John Wesley spent at least four hours every day in prayer. No wonder the Lord used him mightily. <laughs> we need to ask according to Christ's name. John 14, we're told, ask this in Christ's name. That's why we pray to the Father through the Son, as, as the Lord laid out for us. And then finally, I would argue we must come with faith and believing. Matthew 21 states, and whatever you ask in prayer, if you believe, you will receive. So I can hear it now, right? Well, Hoffman, that's great. We pray to the Lord's will. I see why we need to pray, but <laughs> it doesn't always come out like I think, and I, I thought I had a pure motive. When the answers do not come as we were hoping we must recognize that God may be delaying the answer because of something better for us than what we have asked or due to a special work that we do not see in the present. Let me give you a great example. Paul in 2 Corinthians says, I asked the Lord three times, remove it, Lord. <laughs> but Paul writes, he said to me, my grace is enough for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. The Lord allowed Paul to suffer so that Christ could show his strength to not only Paul, but that Christ could be glorified through Paul. It was all according to God's will. And so John says here, we know. We have an assurance of answered petitions according to his will. And thus we have this glorious opportunity to, to come to him and that he hears us. The intimacy that involved, and he doesn't end here. In fact, one commentator, Howard Marshall, argues that John is deliberately leading us to the next verse, in verse 16. If anyone sees his fellow Christian committing a sin not resulting in death, he should ask and God will grant life to the person who commits a sin not resulting in death. He repeats it. There is a sin resulting in death. I do not say that. He should ask about that. He's saying, I, I'm not going to address that. 
Well, John assumes we are in tune, doesn't he, with those around us, spirit, how they're doing spiritually. Remember, we're all fathered by God. We're all part of the family of God, those who've made a profession in Christ. He's not telling us to be busybodies. <laughs> John's not saying that. Or seeking to serve as the role of the Holy Spirit. Far from it. But we are called, and Paul even states this, that we are to carry one another's burdens. And so we must remember the purpose of praying here for those who are in sin even in, when we talk about church discipline or, or excommunication, the purpose is for restoration, right? It, it, it's to help this one become more like Christ. And so that certainly is the context here that I think that John is highlighting. But there are some important questions that raise. <laughs> First of all, he talks about death here in verse 16. Is he referring to physical death or is he referring to spiritual death? What is he addressing here? We know in scripture there are people who die because they're in sin. Ask Ananias and Sapphira. They became uh, piles of rocks well, on top of them because dead. God, God struck them dead. We know in 1 Corinthians there's people that were sick even to the point of dying because they were taking communion unholily or unrighteously. So we know that, but I, I don't think, and again, I'm, I don't believe this is what John is talking about here. I think he's talking about spiritual death. It fits because the context is talking about eternal life, the immediate context. And how do we know that this sin is leading to physical death? We don't. So to me, the context is spiritual death. But then that leads us to another question. Hopefully you're still awake here. Follow with me, because this is, the, this is a little problematic. And that is a sin not resulting in death versus a sin that leads to death. The sin that leads to death is when you wreck your dad's car or you use your mom's Louis Vuitton purse as a football. That's a sin unto death. No, that's not what we're talking about either. <laughs> I, I, I believe in the context of 1 John... John is talking, when he says a sin not unto death, that is a sin committed by believers who have been covered by the atonement. They have placed their faith in Christ and sins which Christians can and do commit, sadly, cannot condemn to hell. But they can hinder our walk with the Lord and need to be forgiven. And so thus we claim the promise for others in our prayers for them. This is the life that has been promised to them, but it's a call for purity. Because notice what he says in verse 18, anyone who's fathered by God does not sin. He mentioned this in 3.6 and 3.9. Sin should be foreign to the believer. We'll get to that in a minute. So the sin unto not unto death, I would argue, is sins that we commit. Granted, all unrighteousness is sin. But I think the context here, the sin that does result in death, is based upon the denial that Jesus is the Son of God. You deny who Jesus is, there's, <laughs> there's no other hope. It's the only way. That's what he said in verse 13. You call the name of the Lord, you have eternal life. You don't call the name of the Lord, you don't have eternal life. It's a deliberate refusal to believe that Jesus provides the solution. 
the false teachers in chapter 2. They went out from us. They appeared to be followers of Jesus. They did not really belong to us, John says, because if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but they went out from us to demonstrate that all of them do not belong to us. They've left the church, these false teachers. They claimed they were Christ followers, but they were not. They, because ultimately they denied the Jesus as the Son of God and as of Christ. They have willfully, catch this, they have willfully rejected Christ, which results, no doubt, in spiritual death. Unlike believers who have never turned to Christ, these individuals claim to have known the truth, but in actuality, they deny him. To the one who believes but struggles walking in righteousness, loving God, loving others, then there is forgiveness. We pray for one another so that no one should cross that line that leads to open, deliberate rejection of Christ. Now let me... Let me rephrase it. So sin not unto death, I would argue, is sins being committed by believers because they're under the atonement. They've already been <laughs> set aside for, for the Lord. But sin can separate in the sense of create um, lack of fellowship. That's true. For the one who has denied Christ, they've committed the sin that is unto death because there's no other means. Now let me give you a couple caveats here. John, notice that John is not forbidding intercession for those who commit a sin unto death. He simply says, I'm not going to talk about that. That's not the context here. The context is he's wrapping up the letters, how we love one another, how we function as a body of believers. And so I would argue, we must remember that no sin is of such a kind as to prevent forgiveness, provided that we repent of it. Nothing is impossible with God. But again, John's immediate concern is of intercessory prayer for wayward brothers and sisters. Secondly, salvation is always obtainable by each person confessing his or her own sin, repenting and believing the gospel. I cannot pray someone into heaven. <laughs> they have to come to, I can pray that they, they repent and they understand what it means to go to heaven. But they themselves are going to have to repent of their sin. I can't do that for them. And then finally, if you're struggling with doubt and evil thoughts about the Lord, and it doesn't mean that you've performed the unpardonable sin. I've heard this as well. And that there's no hope for you. These false teachers have no conscience. There is no remorse or desire to repent. They are guilty of the sin. They're arrogant. And they are self-satisfied. So, what is the promise here as we see the overarching promise in these verses? Our confidence in the Lord is experienced through prayer. He hears, he understands, and he responds. And we have the joy of seeing the power of prayer, not only in our petitions that we make to him, and that he hears those petitions, but also that we have the great opportunity to pray for those that are struggling and fulfill what Galatians states is fulfilling the law of Christ, that is bearing one another's burdens. And I think that's what he's highlighting here. Well, he's not done. Look at verse 18. We just read a portion of this. Everyone fathered by God does not sin, but God protects the one he has fathered, and the evil one cannot touch him. We know that we're from God, and the whole world lies in the power 
of the evil one. This third truth segment that we can know, we might not know all of the earth's surface under the ocean, but you can know this, that the Lord protects his own, those that are fathered by him. Again, John, we've seen this time and time again. He loves these contrasts. In fact, there are 20 of them, a little more than 20, between the children of God and the children of Satan. This is light, this is darkness. They love their brothers, they hate. And on it goes. For John, there is no middle ground. And so the idea of the sinning believer to him is an oxymoron. It's kind of like saying plastic silverware, working vacation, Virtual reality, original copy, jumbo shrimp, or soft rock. It doesn't work, right? Earlier in 1 John, as we just stated, John has made it clear, the apostle, a believer doesn't sin. And again, we talked about that. Some take that as an habitual idea. They don't go on sinning. I think eschatologically he's looking at this and says, there is a day when sin will be not in you, and in the meantime, our lives should be characterized as one that is not sinning. Now, John has made it very clear, sadly, that we as believers will sin. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive. He's already stated that. He's already stated here. You pray for those that are sinning. So he understands that. But sin is not a condition or character of a Christ follower. If you claim to know Christ... And you, and you do not struggle over sin in your life, then I seriously question the genuineness of your salvation. You might claim to be a koi fish, but if you can't swim, and you don't have that plump, torpedo-shaped body with rich colors, then me suspects you ain't a koi fish. You get the idea. Right? John is saying, you claim to know Christ? He's already, he's highlighted this three times, those three cycles through the whole book. <laughs> you have a righteous conduct, you love one another, and you have a proper Christology, study of Christ. If you don't, we got a problem. And that's what he's saying here. Now, notice how he elaborates on this, and I love this, in this section about him protecting us. Why? He states it twice in, in verse 18. We have been fathered by God. We've entered into a relationship. He's moved us from children of wrath to his family. He's brought us into darkness, into the marvelous light. Our very existence and continuance is by God and of God. And being part of that family means we delight in him. We spend time with him. Our lives are governed by him. We seek to be like him. Luke 11, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly father give you the Holy Spirit. God, he's claiming his own. He says, I, I've fathered you. We say this not to boast, those of us who know Christ. It's out of a deep, and I would argue, profound sense of gratitude. Let's not forget, we were destined to hell. <laughs> but Christ saved and rescued us, and in this we marvel. But he's not done. He says, not only do we have the guarantee that he's fathering us, but notice he says in the latter part of verse 18, he also protects us. The evil one cannot touch us. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. 
This is a great verse, especially for you young people, to memorize now. I had a junior high teacher in Sunday school who made us memorize this verse. And it's one of those I am so grateful for. The text states, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to men, women, but God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted above beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Satan will try anything to undermine our faith, destroy our walk with God, and make us most miserable. But he cannot take us from the clutches of our Lord. We are his. And he stated, no one shall pluck you out of my hand, including Satan. <laughs> and we're reminded of that. Yes, it's an amen. He says, nothing can touch you. And he says in verse 19, why? Because we are from God. We have this knowledge that we're protected and, and sheltered by God himself. John 17, pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but you, Lord, keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even though, even as I am not of the world. We're in it, yes, but we're protected so that's for the believer, we should be abstaining from the world. That's not our home. That's, that's not our gang that we hang with. So let me ask you, can those you work with, those you go to school with, can they observe something different in your life? Are you a living a life that reflects one that belongs to the Father? Or are you living as a Christian in, in camos? You're blending right in. That's a problem. And that leads us to promise three. Our safety in this hostile world comes because we are in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit and protected by the Father. Augustus Toplady, a British minister and hymn writer from the 1700s, you may know him as the author of Rock of Ages, wrote this poem, A Sovereign Protector I Have, Unseen yet forever at hand, unchangeably faithful to save, almighty to rule and command. He smiles and my comforts abound. His grace as the dew shall descend and walls of salvation surround the soul he delights to defend. Wow. There's a lot in this world we don't know, but John says, man, you, you gotta know these things. No, first of all, the assurance of your faith in Christ, the power of prayer, the protection of your souls. And finally, in verse 20, he gives us one more knowledge, and that is knowing our Savior intimately. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us insight to know him who is true. Wow. Jesus came to earth to make all of this possible. 1 Corinthians 2, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us. What did he write? Look at 1 John 1. Look what he states there at the very beginning of this letter. This is what we proclaim to you, what was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen, and the life that was revealed. This is what we have come to know. And we want you to know this intimacy, this fellowship that you can have. 
We've been given understanding, those of you who know Christ as your Savior, to the nature of sin and the world in which we live. We've come to know God and what it means to have a relationship with him. We've come to know Christ as our Redeemer and Savior. We have been given life and fellowship with him. And we have seen the truth and the power and might and strength that comes. Thank the Lord, right? Thank the Lord for sending his son. Thank the Lord for dying on the cross. And thank the spirit who has given us insight. It is important that we believe in what we believe. We've got a world out there that says, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Well, I hate to tell you, it does make a difference. I hope I have a neurosurgeon that's more than just sincere. <laughs> or a civil engineer. It, it makes a difference. <laughs> I love Warren Wiersbe. He, he put this little ditty in his commentary. Shed a tear for Jimmy Brown. Poor Jimmy is no more. For what he thought was H2O was H2SO4. Oops. We have truth. We have reality in the Lord and our faith is rooted in truth. <laughs> I wrote, while the world wanders blindlessly and lacks direction and meaning, the believer walks in the real light because God is light. While the world talks about love and looks for acceptance, the believer knows what real love is because God is love. While the world questions what is true, the believer has the answers because God is true. And so, John reminds us of what we know, these four truths, and then he concludes the letter, little children, guard yourselves from idols. <laughs> I remember the first time I read that, I thought, what? There's no glorious doxology. There's no, uh, I love you all, and tell Sophia I love her, and Thomas, and Didymus, and all these great people. There's, there's no these farewells. It ends rather abruptly. You're like, what? But it really isn't. It's a glorious ending. Because what it does is, uh, a lot of commentators want to argue that John is telling them to keep away from carved images, these Nastaroths or Ishtar, you know, you fill in the blank. I don't think so at all. Because we know in Jewish writings in the intertestament period, idolatry refers to anything that eclipses our worship of God. John is saying, apart from Jesus, there is no real understanding of truth, no power to live according to the truth. We exchange the true God for false gods or idols, anything that, that takes our heart away from him. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, the greatest danger confronting all of us is not a matter of deeds or of actions, but of idolatry. It's an idolatry that lies at the root, I would argue, of all actions. No wonder he says guard, and it's in the present tense. This is ongoing. This isn't just something once you do. John has laid out who this Christ is, what Christ has done, our fellowship with him, and all that we know. And he says, be careful. Don't let anything eclipse the Lord. So let me ask us, the things we serve, our sports, our job, our family, our pocketbook, our hobby, even a ministry, is this what we worship? 
You ask, well, I don't, I don't know. Well, what controls your life? What consumes your time, your attention, your energy, your money? Is the Lord playing second fiddle as you sacrifice all for your profession, your status, your sports, your image, your family, your schooling? We're called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's easy to wag our heads and oh, who would ever worship some graven image when the Jewish writings of the intertestament period, and I think John here is highlighting, oh, be careful. <laughs> what consumes the heart is just as wretched. Idolatry is anything that takes the place of God. And as John has taken us through this glorious book, and this is who our Lord is, and this is what we benefit from, be on guard. Don't go there. I thought it's very apropos as we journey into a new building on 161st in seven days. Our motto is loving God, loving others. The, the, the statement across the horizontal beam of the stained glass window on the cross is we love because he first loved us from 1 John. It is very apropos. May nothing eclipse our worship of God, corporately or individually. It's all about him. It's not about us. And so the promise number four is our lives find truth in the Lord, a truth which in provides meaning, hope, and joy. <laughs> we may never know why hairs turn gray or if the Loch Ness Monster really exists. But John has given us some things that we can know even now. We can know the assurance of our faith in Christ. We can know the power of prayer. We can know the protection of our Savior. And we can know our Savior intimately. What riches. <laughs> what praise. Father, we come to you and Lord, we thank you. You entered time and space and your son said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And it's so that we could know you. And then your son died on a cross. He paid the price for our sin so then we could be counted righteous and we could enter into your presence through Christ who serves as our high priest. But it doesn't end there. <laughs> you gave us the Holy Spirit to guide and to instruct and you gave us your written word through the power of the Spirit which allows us to know these truths. To know, Lord, that those of us who've called upon the name of the Lord, we have been saved. We have eternal life. We know the power of prayer that comes and that you hear our petitions and the cares that we can convey through our prayers for one another. You've reminded us of the protection that you give and the opportunity we can have intimacy with you in what is true, what is real. To whom shall we go? For it is, as Peter stated, your son, he has eternal life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's in his name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.